Well, we're um, continuing in our series from the book of Joshua. You can follow along with me in chapters 10 and 11 this morning. Our theme this fall has been Church on the Move. And the starting verse I want to read for us before we pray comes from chapter 11 at the end there. And the scripture says that Joshua took the whole, the entire land, according all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. As you can see there, the title of my message this morning is Taking Ground in Your Life. So Lord Jesus, thank you this morning that you are our Joshua. You're the one, Father God, that leads us out, brings us to the place, Father God, of fruitfulness, the land of milk and honey. We want to learn from your scriptures this morning. Cause us to be learners. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. We thank you for your precious word. We bow before it. We honor it. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I gave us a map, and I want to show us again this map because this will give us a, an overview of what's going on in, in the book of Joshua. Uh, we worked our way now through 10 different chapters, and from this slide here you can see that there are three basic areas in which Joshua went in order to bring the nation of Israel into the promised land. Now, this was a big, big assignment for Joshua to bring two million people, bring them across the desert from Egypt all the way into this wonderful piece of land, which we know today to be modern-day Israel. So literally, you can get on a plane, go to Israel, and this is the exact same land that we're talking about except several thousand years earlier. So what happened is that Moses brought the people to this place east of the Jordan. They camped in, in the area which is called the land of Moab. He brought them across the Jordan River by parting it. They took over two key cities, Jericho and Ai, and we've already been preaching through those. And last week we talked about how they began to move into the southern sphere of the country. Now there are three main campaigns that Joshua conducted. The first is what we call going into the middle of the country. And as you can see from the terrain here, this is the spine of the country. This is the highlands. And so for Joshua, it's really important to get up to these peak points so that he could have a great base of operation. So what we see in chapter 10 and going into chapter 11 is that there was this battle that occurred in the northern tip of this region right here. And the king of Jerusalem, he had heard about how the Israelites had defeated uh, the Canaanites at Jericho and Ai, and he was very, very scared. So he organized a coalition of five other kings in this area, and they came to fight Joshua at Gibeon. And as we know from the message last week, God routed uh, the Canaanites. God did a massive miracle, caused the sun to even stand still. And so then after this win at Gibeon, Joshua begins to go into the southern region, taking over all these different cities, including this large region called the Negev. Again, if you go to Israel today, there's also this Negev region. It's still very much there. And so the Bible summarizes for us what happened there at the end of the southern campaign. Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, the Negev, the lowlands, the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivors, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. So now the southern area is taken, and all the kings in the north are quite afraid. They're like, oh my goodness, now they're going to start moving into the northern territory. 
So what we find here is that as this area now has been taken by uh, Joshua, the kings up here are getting very, very nervous. So chapter 11 tells us that the king here of Hazor, king of Hazor, decides also to organize a massive coalition. Just like Adonizek, king of Jerusalem, did down here, Hazor is going to try to do the same thing. So he mobilizes the king from Shimron, from Ashaph, Madon, and they're all going to meet at this pivotal point called Miram. And so the scripture tells us this, they, as in all the different kings and their military, came out with their armies and as many people as the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. So we're talking a massive battle that's going on here. All the kings having agreed to meet and came and encamped together at the waters of Meron to fight against Israel. They're outnumbered. Their military is not as strong. So this is a, a huge moment for Joshua. And so what does God tell Joshua to do? In the following verses, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua is facing this huge battle. God calms his heart, gives him confidence, and says, no problem, go out, you're going to defeat them. You're even going to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So then we read, after this whole battle, the outcome of the northern campaign. Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Miram and attacked them, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them. And if you read on in chapter 12, you find out that in total, 31 kings were defeated in the central, southern, and northern campaign, which makes Joshua one of the most successful generals in military history. He knew how to take ground. And so that's my focus this morning, is Joshua's story is meant to inform us and inspire us and most of all, equip us on how to take ground in our lives. Three weeks ago, I was in Minneapolis preaching at my former home church. And the first pastor that pastored me when I was in college was in attendance in that service. And he came up to me after the service to chat with me, and he was very complimentary. He wanted to encourage me about the sermon. And uh, he happened to see my three other kids that were standing nearby who had come to support me. So Heidi, who is here, one of our four children is in Vancouver. My other three were in Minneapolis. And in the middle of the conversation with me, he turned to my three adult children and said, it's amazing to see what your dad is doing now. You should have seen your dad when he first came to my church. That was over 30 years ago. He was so shy and quiet, he didn't say anything. I'll never forget that. He just sat in the outside circle in our gym during our pre-service Bible studies, taking notes. And he was good at that. Now he's being used by God to preach the word. That was a neat moment for me because it was an opportunity for my kids to hear from an outside source. Not just me, but someone who was back with me there over 30 years ago and tell them, my kids, what their dad was like in his early years. Painfully shy at times so that they could catch a sense of what God's grace had done in my life. Growing up, one of my first memories I had as a kid was my dad telling me to go up to the counter to ask for more ketchup for my french fries. 
I was petrified to walk up and talk to people. It seemed like a simple task, but I was just scared. It wasn't like my dad was making me do it. He was just teaching me to do something very routine and normal. But as a kid, it was like a mountain for me to climb. On top of it, my dad was really outgoing. He was very social. He was very good with people. So I suppose in comparison, I felt more pressure to perform like my dad. When I look back, it's funny how this is one of the memories that was stuck in my head, my shyness. Little did I know that this would be a mountain that I would have to overcome. In fact, I can confidently state this morning, my name is Rich Gao and I'm a fearful person. So when God called me into the ministry, this seemed like an impossible assignment. I was afraid of speaking. I was afraid of being up front. I was afraid of being in the spotlight. Add to the fact that I grew up as an Asian in an all-white town in Wisconsin. Literally for 18 years, I was the only Asian young man. And it made me all the more self-conscious. In fact, I was so used to being the lone Asian, when I saw other Asians, I didn't know how to act or relate to them. It was like, how do I respond to my own mirror image? It was such a weird dynamic, reverse cultural shock, not knowing how to feel comfortable among my own ethnicity. And it just added to my awkwardness. In fact, when we moved here from Minneapolis to Vancouver, and just Asians everywhere, it was just like sensory overload. I, I just can't take all these Asian people here. And then on top of it, God placed a prophetic call on my life. Now I had to prophesy over people and speak at conferences. If being a pastor wasn't hard enough, being called to prophetic ministry was another thousand deaths. Lord, I just want to hide under a rock. I want to be a monk. Just give me a brown robe. Send me to a monastery. I don't want Hawaii. I don't want to just go to some unknown place in the hills of nowhere where I only have to feed goats and make beer. The call to leadership was so far from my natural desire. All I wanted to do was to support and follow someone else. And over the years, Mimi has, has heard my complaining, I just want to be a number two man. Then on the natural side, all of this shyness made the prospect of dating like a horror movie. <laughs> I looked at all my Casanova guy friends, like Pastor John, and I thought, there's no way I can be like him or them. So I committed myself to being a bachelor until the rapture. <laughs> that worked well until I met Mimi, and then I turned into a tiger. Just kidding. <laughs> my shyness and my fear, though, were very real, and God wanted me to take ground. My promised land lay in being a pastor and being a servant of God, being in front of people, leading people, and advancing the kingdom. To do that, like Joshua did with his southern and northern campaigns, I had to overcome the hill countries, the Negev, the lowlands, the slopes, and all the kings in my life. And like Joshua, I had to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots that put such a fear in me. When we look at these two verses, I want to break down this morning how we are to take ground. So the first point here is that we need to take the hill countries. This means taking the high places in your life, the challenging places. And this requires endurance. Going up and scaling tall places requires great energy and effort. That's why we have freedom session. 
We have tall places in our life that we have to conquer. We have to get up there. Chapter 11, verse 18, Joshua said that he waged war against all these kings for a long time. Joshua was a man with endurance. He made it look easy. He stayed strong. But I can tell you there have been plenty of times along the way where the thought of giving up on ministry has given me great pleasure. The thought of quitting and getting in a job in a factory sounded so good. I've even been jealous of Belcar. Maybe you don't know that name, but he's our parking lot attendant. I would come by him every morning and go, man, what a great job. Just so predictable. Just sit there. No worries in the world. Lord, it's too hard to climb these mountains, to believe for breakthrough, to believe for finances, to overcome people's cynicism and sarcasm, trying to overcome people's passivity and lethargy, handling relationship difficulties. It's too hard, Lord, to climb these hills. But lest I go too far down this road of complaining and whining, I have to remember this is part of the pastoral package. It comes with the territory. So Rich, put on your big boy pants and get on with it. Being a pastor requires that you man up and to be a man. And that's a good thing. Take your hill. Second thing that we see from these scriptures is that we must possess the Negev. The Negev represents the broad areas. There are times when God wants us to take ground quickly, to gobble up large areas. Contrary to the endurance required to take the high places, the Negev requires a different kind of activity. It requires moving quickly with God to act with speed. There are prophetic seasons in our lives when God moves fast and we need to respond in like measure. Twice in chapter 10 and chapter 11, the word suddenly is used to describe Joshua's movements. In 10.9, in the southern campaign, the Bible says that Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. We can barely get up for the early service, let alone stay up all night, march 25 miles, ascend 4,000 feet to get to the mountain peak in order to go to Gibeon. But the Bible says suddenly, the Holy Spirit told him now is the time. In chapter 11, verse 7, during the northern campaign, again we read, Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. Joshua responded swiftly as the situation needed. The Bible says that the wind blows where it will. God wants us to be a spirit-led people, to have our ear tuned to the Holy Spirit, to not just be in our own little bubble, but also to be aware of a God bubble, to hear his movements, the Bible describes it like a wind, and it blows where it will. God is fixed, and God is spontaneous. God is a rock, and God is a wind. We like the rock part. We like stability and security. We like the strength and certainty of the rock. We like our paychecks every two weeks. We like our dinner at 5.30. We like the trains to be on schedule. We like the lifestyle of predictability. But the wind part is much harder. The spontaneous change in plans part is much harder. But when God moves, we must always be ready to move quickly and suddenly. And this is a key to taking ground. We must be on God's timing because he knows the time when we can achieve rapid results and we should not delay or tarry. We must seize the moment. 
We must act as the Spirit prompts. Moving in God, being a church on the move. Like for instance, the Lord quickened to us this summer that we should have a, a second service. And I'm so proud of our church that we're able to pivot and do it quickly and expand. That's what it means to be a church on the move. That's what it means to be a spirit-filled church is if the Holy Spirit speaks, and by the way, who is the head of the church? Jesus. I'm just an under-shepherd. John is just an under-shepherd. The Holy Spirit speaks to us, and we need to be quick to move. We don't want it to get caught up in red tape and bureaucracy and committees and wonder what we should do, and by the time we get done with it, the whole thing is dead because the freshness of the Word now has rotted on the vine. We need to respond as a church. Can you imagine Joshua saying to 2 million people, that's like saying to all of Vancouver, all right, let's pack up and go. No wonder we have stories of the people whining in the desert. No wonder we have stories of them complaining about their comfort level because they weren't yet trained like Joshua to be a people of the Spirit, to move quickly with him. So moving in God, being a church on the move, requires flexibility and adaptability. Otherwise, we won't take our negatives and secure broad gains. Third point here is that we must conquer the lowlands. This comes from part C of verse 40 in chapter 10. There will always be seasons in our life where the journey is a slog. Pressing toward the mark is hard. Paul said in Philippians 3, I press towards the mark. In other words, there's resistance. The wind is in our face. It's not always easy. It's not always just clear sailing. You have to press forward. It's difficult, and it can be depressing. It can get us down. There are chapters in our life where it's just marked by sadness. We all have stress points. The point isn't whether we will have stress. The issue is how will we cope. We all have lowlands to conquer. And this is where Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount come in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, Jesus knows how to pastor us beautifully. He knows we're going to go through the lowlands. He knows we're going to go through dips. He knows that we need comfort during that time. Now note that this verse is the second most important beatitude. Jesus understands that on this side of heaven, on this side of our fallen world, we are constantly going to be battling difficulties and low points. But Jesus said, when you mourn, you are blessed because you'll be comforted. God is our comforter. He gives us the feel that we need to press on. He gives us the peace and the encouragement, the vision, the joy we need to keep moving ahead and not give up. And that comes in the midst of our mourning and our lows, our sense of defeat and failure. God is there to pick you up. If you have lost hope, fear not, little one. The God of hope is right there with you. Just call upon him. We just sang, I just want you. I just need you. I just open up my heart. The devil is there to stomp us down, condemn us, shame us, guilt us, make us feel low. But John 16 declares, God is our helper. Amen? The prophet Isaiah says, I dwell on high in a holy place. And for most of us, we get that part. We have that theological piece down well. But Isaiah goes on to say, not only does God dwell on high, he also dwells with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive. Are you in need of revival? Are you in need of reviving, of refreshing? 
Go to God. Not your TV. Not your internet. Go to God. He's the one that will revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. God, I am so broken. I don't have answers. I'm so confused. I'm distraught. God is there. That's the prophetic word of the Lord. Job 5.11, if there was ever a man that went through a low place, it was Job. I encourage everyone to read the book of Job and you will always come out feeling better. It's like, whoa, if Job went through that, my problems are just little itty bitty. And Job wrote and declared, those who mourn are lifted to safety. The enemy wants to defeat us in the lowlands. He wants to get us when we're down. But God is our victor. He is the glory and the lifter of our heads. Number four, we must take the slopes. Slopes represent transition points between places. If we don't get the transitions right, we can slide back to where we are or fall back to our previous place. Transition points require us getting the right counsel, the right advice so that we can move to our next vista or season. This requires that we have good advisors in our lives, godly voices, and building a community and team around us that really care for us. That's why we place such an emphasis on community. Not because it's just our idea. This is a God idea. Why is one of the dominant metaphors in the scripture that we are like sheep? If you've ever been to a sheep farm, it's amazing to watch sheep. They have to always cluster together. They feel disoriented, and they have to be in groups. So God uses this powerful metaphor from nature. And by the way, watch the nature channels. You will learn so much about God. So he has this picture for us as sheep, and we need community. We need to be with spiritual people who understand God's voice and God's values. Why are we listening to voices out there that have no God orientation? You won't make the transition. You will not take the slopes. We can't go it alone. We can't insist on our own way. We can't be bullheaded or hardheaded. We need a 360 perspective. Culture just reinforces for us that we should just have an independent spirit. Just do what you want. Just wherever you're led, just do that. Just give in to every single desire. That's foolishness. That's not wisdom. In my own life, God has provided me so many mentors throughout my spiritual walk. Dave, Gary, Chuck, Jim, Keith, Barb, and most importantly, my wife and my family. I would not be where I am today without them. They've helped me navigate the slopes and key decision points in my life. But here's an important point. It also required that I listen to them and submit to them. What good is it if you have these advisors you don't listen to them? They've just wasted their breath. They've wasted their advice because you don't listen to them. Are you really listening, taking it to prayer and saying, God, are you speaking through them? The reason I actually met Mimi was because I listened to my pastor. I met her at a conference here in Vancouver, but I didn't want to come out here because someone was wanting to set me up with another girl. I did not want my spiritual priorities to be mixed up with romance because I was a bachelor till the rapture. But my pastor said to me, you know, Rich, just keep them separate in your head. Just go there to get the training. And I obeyed him, even though 
my own natural inclination was, no, I'll just stay back. It's okay. And a result of obeying that counsel, I met my wife. I conquered a slope. I didn't slide back down. Part of Joshua's success was he submitted to the word that God gave him. Back there in Deuteronomy at the end, when Moses laid his hand on Joshua, the Bible says a spirit of wisdom came upon him, and Moses charged him, be strong and courageous. And Joshua came into the promised land because he heeded that word that was in his ear from Moses. He was equipped because his mentor helped him to navigate the slopes that he would encounter. We also see here, point five, that we must take out the kings completely. Not only does this say this in chapter 10, verse 40, but again in 11, chapter 11, verse 17, it says that Joshua captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua was sure to take out the kings completely. Those kings represent the strong men, the strongholds in our lives that prevent us from progressing in Jesus. Think about those things that are preventing you from progressing in your walk with God. And as I mentioned, shyness was a strong man in my life. This was a king that needed to be put to death if I was going to come into my promised land, into my calling. King Hazer was the strong man occupying the northern region of my life, dominating whole areas of my soul. Don't say to yourself, well, that's just my personality. Or that you've come to just learn how to live with these things. Those are compromises that God does not want you to live with. He died on the cross so that you could be completely free, not just partially free. God had to take out, had me take out, King Hazer and all his cohorts. In my case, that meant fear and timidity, insecurity, lack of confidence, shrinking back, cowardliness, all these things that came with shyness. But Joshua, he had a vision for total victory, defeating all the kings, not just a few of them, all 31 of them. And I think as Christians, many times we're, we're content to settle for a partial victory and not a complete one. We're content to experience part of the blessing of Christ, not all of them. Ephesians 1, verse 3, says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. If God put all the blessings here and we just take a little portion, why would we do that? When God's heart is, here's my love for you, receive it all. And God wants us to experience continual victory. Victory after victory after victory. He wants us to taste success. He doesn't say, oh, that's enough. You know what? You killed one king, that's good. Don't worry about the 30 others. No, go get them all. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so ask yourself, what Canaanite kings are in your life that need to be struck down and put to death? Yeah, put to death. Don't play with it. Don't be bedmates. Don't be friends with it. You have to put it to death. The epistle says, what does the spirit and the flesh have to do with one another? They don't. They're completely opposite. They're diametrically opposed to one another. You put the flesh to death so that the spirit can live. So what are some of the kings in your life that need to be put down? Anger? Jealousy? Bitterness? 
love of money, lust, laziness, complaining, cynicism. Just because I didn't call out maybe something that you relate to doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's not speaking to you about what that king is in your life. And then we read this, point six, that we must hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. The Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You'll take out their horses and burn their chariots with fire. You know, the enemy's implements of war are powerful and intimidating. We can look at culture and we go, wait a minute, I can't do that. that that's too much to take on. I feel like a grasshopper. We look at their war horses and their whirling chariots and we go, I'm stepping back here. And it's easy to feel bullied and to be pushed around by their fierceness. But God says to be strong and courageous. I want to share this story with you about facing some of the horses and chariots in my life. I grew up in a wrestling town in, a, in River Falls, Wisconsin. River Falls was a city. Wisconsin was a state. Our school was a wrestling powerhouse because it was a farming community with these strapping, young, strong, young farm boys. And our team was consistently ranked in the top ten in of our state year after year. And we always had state champions on our team. And I got involved in wrestling when I was young, when I was in grade school, because that was the culture of the city. But it was kind of weird for this Asian dude to be out there wrestling with all these white guys. But that was just the culture, you know? Like when you're in Canada, you play hockey. Like when you're from Asia, you're never thinking about, I want to be a pro hockey player. That's just not the culture. So I got involved in wrestling at a young age, and I was really good at it. I was basically undefeated. I won most of my matches and rarely lost. But when I got to high school, where the lights were brighter and the focus was more intense, the expectations of what I could do paralyzed me with fear. My coaches would talk about me on the radio. They'd say, yeah, Rich is going to make the varsity team. He's going to be one of our key wrestlers. And in practice, I could wrestle with the best of them. I could wrestle with the state champions. But when it came time, for the actual match, I couldn't pull it off. I'd get sick. I'd underperform. And at the bottom, it was a fear of failing and losing and being in front of all these hundreds of people watching my match. Now, you know, wrestling is a very lonely sport because it's just you and the other person in front of everyone. When I got to high school then, I only wrestled a few varsity matches, and my career ended when I quit the team after grade 11. Then I got saved, and I went off to college. As I began to walk and go in my faith, that fear began to haunt me. It was a shadow that would not go away. It kept coming back at me and nagging me, and I really regretted that part of my life. One day when I was praying, God spoke to me to get back into wrestling at the collegiate level. Now, I had just finished my junior year, year three in college, university. God spoke to me to try out for the wrestling team my last year, my senior year. I thought, what a ludicrous idea. I had lost three years of wrestling experience, one year in high school, four years altogether, and now God wanted me to wrestle at the college level. There's no way that I could compete effectively. But God's voice was insistent, and my confidence was growing that that was what I was supposed to do. So my senior year, I tried out for the wrestling squad, and by golly, I made the varsity team at my weight class. 
Not because I was so good, but because there was no one else in my weight class. <laughs> and so in my first match of my college career, we had a triangular meet, meaning it was a meet with three teams. And when the captains of the two other teams came out to shake hands, both of them were at my weight. Here comes the horses and chariots. God was making sure that I faced my fear head on. But you know what? I didn't care that I was going to be facing the captains. I knew I was exactly where I was supposed to be. By the time I walked onto the mat, I had already gotten my victory. As it turned out, I only lasted two minutes in that match before I got pinned. That's the first time I was ever pinned. But I didn't care. I had won. I had overcome my fear and I would gotten my victory. God had spoken and I, hold, I obeyed. Now I was a winner. I can't tell you the feeling I had in the locker room after the match. It was so liberating. I'm not intimidated by the horses and chariots anymore. I had hamstrung them and burned the chariots in my life. And I'd taken ground in my life and it was glorious. God is a God of every area, terrain, and challenge in your life. The hills, the lowlands, the Negevs, the wide open spaces, the slopes, the kings, the horses, the chariots. Taking ground in your life is how you glorify God. Shrinking back is not how you glorify God. Taking ground is how you glorify God. It's how you prove the gospel. It's how you prove that God is sufficient. It's how you develop your own testimony. And you can get up and you say, God did this for me because I trusted in him, because I depended on him. It's how you enjoy life. There is nothing like stepping into the will of God. It's full of adventure and miracles. It's how you fulfill your destiny, whether it's becoming a pastor like me or becoming a president of a company or a plumber in your city. Every call matters to God. And God wants you to be successful. Remember that. God wants you to be successful. He doesn't want you to be a doormat. He wants you to be successful. He wants you to prosper. Remember right at the beginning of the book, Joshua, Joshua 1, verse 8, when you meditate on the book of the law, day and night, being careful to do, do according to all that is written in it, then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall have success. God wants us to flourish. What ground does God want you to take in your life? What part of the promised land do you need to take? The hills? The lowlands? The Negev? The slopes? The kings? What horses and chariots do you need to hamstring and burn? And as we close in prayer, I want us to just take a moment to reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. So God, we just come before you right now. We ask you to speak to our hearts. You have a promised land for every single one of us. You created us, God, for this time, for this moment, in this place. You delight over us. You want us to be a glory to you. And so we ask this morning, God, that you show us, reveal to us, highlight to us, those areas, God, that we need to take. And as God has spoken something to your heart, I want to pray this for you. Spirit of grace, just come and touch my brother and sisters. Touch every person, God, that's here this morning.
Give them a vision of what you have for them. Give them the strength and the courage that they need as you gave to Joshua. Give them the wisdom. Give them the anointing. And God, let it be that their testimony was like Joshua's, that they overcame all the places that you led them into. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not fully yielded your life to Jesus. And you hear these stories of Joshua and the blessing and how God is his helper and God is his counselor and God is his victor. And you've, you need that sense of security and strength in your life and you want to surrender your life to Jesus. It's very simple. You just say, Jesus, I give you my life this morning. I surrender it all to you. I don't have to know what the road looks like ahead. I just entrust myself to you, my creator, my savior, my God. If you prayed a prayer of committing your life to Jesus, just feel, to feel free to indicate that on one of our connect cards. Put your name down, number, email, so that we can contact you. For the rest of us, as God spoke to you, maybe as the message was being shared, encourage you to write it down in your notes or your journal or your, your phone so you can pray over it this week and say, God, I'm going to take this area of my promised land. We thank you, Father God, now in Jesus' name. Amen.